everyone. Welcome to episode 48 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. I know it sounds cliche, but every time you say the episode number, I'm just like, really? That many? <laughs> I know. We're just we getting are, up there. We are getting close to a year at this point. I mean, maybe, I don't know exactly what the date we uploaded our first one is, but we only took one or two weeks off total, so I think we're not quite at a year yet, but we're getting very, very close. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, episode fifty is coming up. Are we doing anything for that? Uh, I think we gotta. Yeah, we gotta. We gotta <laughs> do something special. Uh, we got some stuff in the in the works, but nothing, you know, super ready to announce for that. But yeah, we'll do some sort of you know special celebration kind of thing because it's a big deal to us at least. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm excited. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And a part of that sort of process of uh, I guess like getting far on in the existence of the podcast you know we started a patreon a little while ago it's been going well we've got a bunch of people in our discord showing us support and that's been really really cool it, it means so much to us and we are uh trying to expand that a little bit now so uh collins and i've been putting our heads together and trying to figure out some things we can do to you know show our appreciation back to our patrons and also hopefully you know encourage some more people to you know sign up so for now we're gonna sort of revamp some of the tiers and we're gonna put some stretch goals on there so add some rewards we're gonna we've got some more content sort of planned for the future if we can swing it if we start bringing in enough support that it kind of makes sense to do and we're also going to start making some merchandise for people who are who really want to start rocking the mtg grindcast gear and accessories (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm i'm pretty psyched because this gives me an excuse to like get some play mats and t-shirts and hats printed up that that i can use so hopefully you know hopefully we hit those goals and and it starts making sense to make these things because i'm i'm pretty hyped to uh to to get these made but for right now our next stretch goal you know if we hit our next goal of a hundred dollars an episode then we are just going to be sending out some inkling customs tokens to all of our patrons these are super cute Collins Mullen tokens. They're incredibly adorable. If you've seen them on his Twitter, you know. <laughs> and you can have one of your very own. Collins Mullen with his water jug. If you sign up for our Patreon, we will send you one as soon as we can. And we're going to try to, you know, kind of get a, a sort of MTG Grindcast token cycle going and, and send those out every so often. So that's that's something we are pretty excited about and want to get going. But yeah, also very excited to hopefully start creating some more content in the future. Maybe do some MTG Grindcast co-op streams and uh, some some written content and stuff like that. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, interested in supporting us, head over to patreon.com slash MTG Grindcast. Check out our new stretch goals. And yeah, if you want to support us, fantastic. If you just want to listen, also fantastic. But we definitely appreciate all of you so much. For sure. New patrons to thank this week. We've got Jack Hart and Leiden Bergen. So thank you guys so much. And yeah, let's uh, let's uh, do a podcast. Let's talk about modern. <laughs> yes. So today yeah. is definitely going to be mostly modern focused. Uh, we just had GP Vegas. I don't know how much of that 
you got to catch, but it was very... I, I enjoyed watching it a lot. Yeah, I think I caught pretty much all of the... At least day two onward of, uh, you know, the top eight of GP Vegas and Modern. And then also I caught the beta draft, which was really fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely worth tuning in for. Uh, if you haven't watched it yet, yeah, definitely check it out. It's just like watching these cards get opened like i my heart was kind of beating faster like it was very like more stuff like this give give us more stuff like this it's super cool to watch yeah absolutely like kind of like the novelty events i guess and i think part of what made it really cool was just the names that were in that beta draft and it was just kind of like happenstance that these people well not happenstance these guys are clearly just like you know the better magic players in the room and i guess they're just going to float to winning events and stuff, but, you know, we had, like, Luis Vargas and Martin Yuza and Ben Stark, you know, all playing in this thing, and that, that I'm sure, added a lot to the, the the draw to it all, the appeal to it all, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and talk about a heck of a weekend. Juza top eight of the GP, his 30th GP top eight, and then went and did the beta draft and opened a time walk. Like, that's a solid weekend. Yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> that's like the dream right yeah i i mean i don't think i've ever dreamed something like that what in what world <laughs> right in what yeah, world yeah. is that allowed beyond to happen? your wildest dreams of uh <laughs> you know Magic winning success. an event yeah to get into that so yeah pretty crazy uh so yeah i mean i think that they did a lot of really cool stuff over the vegas weekend that i hope to see more of kind of moving forward yeah, definitely. And kind of on that note, I know, you know, most of what we cover is like, here's what's happening in this format, but I kind of wanted to talk about some of the sort of newsy stuff. Just there's there's a lot of kind of interesting things, some stories from this past weekend that I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about. You know, Vegas was super, super cool. Uh, very fun to watch. I, I'm, kind of, I'm pretty sad that I missed out. It looked like a really fun sort of magic convention kind of environment. Definitely one of the lowlights of the event, though, even from watching coverage from home, was, again, the failure of the, the tournament reporting software on Friday. And I know this happened. I was at GP Charlotte when the, the tournament got like completely disrupted. I fortunately wasn't playing in the main event. I was just hanging out with friends. But the the tournament just got completely disrupted, and it the, the whole weekend kind of was was the worst for it. And, and props to Channel Fireball for handling it as well as they possibly could. But, you know, this is not the first time that this kind of thing has happened. Not the last time. And for it to happen in a, like, 2,700-player tournament is... I don't know. It's, it's pretty atrocious, honestly. Yes. I mean, I know a few people who were kind of, like, local to here that went to their first Grand Prix in Vegas... Mm-hmm. And the takeaway from all of them that I heard was that if if that's just like what Grand Prix are, then I don't want to go to Grand Prix anymore. That was a that was a horrible experience for me trying to play this modern tournament, right? So yeah, I mean, pretty pretty unfortunate for them that that was their first Grand Prix because I know from my personal experience that Grand Prix aren't like that. I think that there's only one other time that I remember having a Grand Prix experience like that, and that was infamous Grand Prix Charlotte, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Grand Prix Tire Fire, a.k.a. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's been it was a, a disaster. Things, but yeah, it, it sounds like day one was at least similar to that, where 
things just weren't happening for hours and that's a really big problem yeah yeah even watching coverage at, at one point you know we we weren't getting a match weren't getting a match weren't getting a match and then they said all right there's a problem with the software we're going to take a two-hour break and that you know yeah. I, like i didn't go to the tournament i didn't spend hundreds of dollars flying there and stuff but i had like i was really excited to watch modern and i had kind of planned my day around you know let's not go too far from the apartment let's make sure that we keep getting back and and watching this tournament and it was a pretty big bummer just not getting to see magic for for a, a big part of the day so yeah so i i really hope that that somebody important has was watching this and, and that some changes get made because the software just can't it just doesn't keep up and and that's you know this doesn't happen all the time but it it shouldn't ever happen yeah, so that that is unfortunate and definitely something that they need to work on. And but also clearly something that only happens at the very large Grand Prix. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Charlotte was like over well over two thousand people. Vegas was also close to three thousand people. And I think the part of the reason that they've been going really smoothly uh, might not be a great thing either because Grand Prix just haven't gotten nearly that large in the past year or so. Yeah. Like, I know that Grand Prix went through kind of like a heyday of like, oh man, all of these Grand Prix are like two to 3,000 people. That's really awesome. But recently, maybe even in the past two years, maybe more, none of the Grand Prix that I've been to have been over like 1,600 people, maybe. So while in recent memory the Grand Prix have gone very smoothly, the Grand Prix have also been smaller. So we kind of, you know, like, do we want there to be smoother smaller grand prix or do we want like more people to be playing in these events which means that magic's more popular which means that all this other stuff it's i don't know it's kind of like this weird dynamic that we're falling into there but i do know that if if they do want to expand magic which i think that clearly it's in their best interest to do so they're going to need to step it up and handle these larger tournaments better because you know it's it should be no surprise that their Grand Prix Vegas big double GP weekend convention got a ton of people in the main event that shouldn't you know they should have known that months in advance and the fact that they didn't prepare accordingly for that is concerning i mean they should just know better yeah and and this is not this is not the fault of the judges or the TO or or anything like that i mean this is it, it comes down to the software that they're using, which is just this pretty archaic spare time garage coded software that just isn't up to the task. And, you know, everybody who has experience with it, every judge that I know who's used it, acknowledges like, like this is not good software. This is not the type of software that entire like 2,500 plus person events should be relying on. And it's, it's, been a problem for a while now and i don't know how many more times this is going to have to happen before it it gets fixed at the highest level so you know just everybody needs to call it out i think and and hopefully at some point it gets fixed and yeah and i don't know who's in charge of wizards event reporter or walter the the like the bigger wizards events reporter that they yeah, use large grand prix tournament stuff. Reporter. yeah yeah i mean that that uh, software is has to be archaic at this point, like ten years old or something like that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So that yeah. They either need somebody needs to be working on a replacement for that. I think right now, and and that should have happened five years ago. You know, uh, I agree. So 
Uh, yeah, and and one other place, one other thing that the the size of this tournament sort of brought into focus for for at least a couple of people is another sort of like archaic part of magic tournaments in general right now, which is I think that these the tournament payouts are kind of a joke right now. GP Vegas yeah. had 2700 plus people and because it was a large GP, the the payout went all the way down to the top 100, which meant something like two and a half percent of the tournament got a prize. And that's brutal to basically like you sit down and you you look down the table and you look all the way down the table. Once you have about like 40 or 50 people that you're looking at, one of those people is going to walk away with a prize. And like, I know we don't play magic tournaments for money. Like that's clearly a terrible idea, but it's, it just feels like you are getting so little in return. Like, like the tournament might as well not have prizes for the vast majority of people playing in it. And this is not just limited to Grand Prix, even though Grand Prix kind of make it, they, they, they put that even more into focus. But, you know, like I played the Magic Online PTQ this weekend and 330 players signed up for it. And the payout goes down to top 32. And the payout for everything outside of top eight is just 24 packs of Dominaria, which is, you know, worth 50 ticks or something like that. And the the entry fee for the event was 30 ticks. So, like, the rake on that is, is like, really brutal. And PTQs are always terrible value. All of the, all the value goes to first place. That's the only prize that anybody cares about. But a little more, you know, would not feel bad for players. So, I, I don't know. Like, clearly, like, you know, us talking about it is not going to cause massive change in the system. But I think if everybody talks about it and everybody starts kind of recognizing that these payouts are, are kind of embarrassing, then hopefully that can spur some sort of change. Because, like, a, a GP that, that pays out to 2% of the participants is just brutal. Yeah, I mean, it's not great for sure. And I think there are a lot of things that they could do to change. Unfortunately, it you know, it is also important to note that in order to run a tournament, there are often a lot more things that need to get money thrown at them. Like the, the mm-hmm. judges need to get paid, the venue needs to be paid for. There's a lot of other stuff. It's not like you can do a simple calculation of like, oh, they have X much money, so that the prize should be also this much. And I, I'm, but it, it's, pre- I'm pretty sure that they they could afford to bump that up a little bit either way but it's it's also important to note from like a tournament organizer perspective that they they generally don't have they have a lot of other things that they need to pay for at the venue and that's where a lot of that money goes towards um, yeah. but i'm pretty sure that like at grand prix they should be able to bump like you know i haven't run the exact numbers but it feels like they should be able to bump up the prizes and still be fine and yeah, that's that's a really hard you know calculation to make. Like running a tournament is definitely expensive. I think the rake from the tournament, the like uh, difference between entry fees and, and prizes given out, the rake was like almost eighty percent at GP Vegas, which is yeah. you know very low value for players. But but yeah, like like definitely renting a Las Vegas convention hall is not a cheap thing. And and from like a business perspective, if you can throw this tournament with a an 80% rake and still get 2,700 people signed up for it, then I guess why would you ever raise the prizes? 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that that is a, a real problem is that, you know, if, if we're looking at it purely analytically from a business perspective, somebody probably sat down and was like, okay, if we raise the prize pool, how many additional players do we expect to get? Mm-hmm. And they just didn't think that that number would be, you know, increased a significant amount. So they were just like, no, we could just keep it this way and then people will still come. Right. Right. So. Right. Kind of where's the incentive for them to, to change, you know? Other than the, the Twitter uproars of, like, where's where's all the prizes? <laughs> like, like people don't go to GPs to, to try to win $10,000. Like, people go to yeah. GPs because they're magic conventions and they're fun to play in. Um, right. So, right. you know, maybe there doesn't need to be a change, but certainly from someone who likes having the possibility of winning some money on the table... I mean, like, like as it is right now, the only reason I go to GPs is because I would like to X into and qualify for the Pro Tour. Right. Like, if that wasn't a possibility, yeah. I don't think I would go. So, I mean, that's that's the situation with prizes for me. Because, like, even if I, like, top 16, like, that pays for my trip to the GP and my entry fee, basically. You know? It's... It's not the, the the prizes are pretty weak even at the relatively high levels of the tournament. Or even just like you know, they don't even need to change the structure of the current prizes. They just uh, probably want to extend further down in the standings, like how many people get prizing. Um, yeah, and that could happen. I think a couple of different ways. Like maybe they pay out by record instead of just like actual standings. Because when you hear people going like twelve and three, and then make not making top thirty two or whatever, then that's pretty daggers, right? You know, you went twelve and three in a Grand Prix, and you only made top sixty four, which is like two hundred and fifty bucks or whatever, which in in many cases doesn't cover your weekend. It's it's kind of tough to balance. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think that you know maybe pay out by record might be an option to consider, and also. So like if you if you right if you twelve and three then you make something if you you know eleven and four you make something else and then maybe not anything for the ten and fives other than the pro point yeah probably not but yeah. you know not cashing a GP at eleven and four is seems crazy but yeah yeah and missing cashing on breakers is just like pretty awkward in a a two day tournament it just doesn't feel. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I don't hate that idea. I don't know what's the right thing to do, and I don't know what, if they should even do anything from a, a business standpoint, but it feels like there should be something done. Yeah, for sure. Let's see what else happened. So, uh, for anybody who doesn't know about this, Wedge from the Mana Source, a, a magic content creator, had some pretty serious uh, medical issues over the weekend, and unfortunately, as an independent content producer, and because America does not have a, a first world healthcare system, uh, he doesn't have health insurance. So anybody who has seen his content or has met him, he's, he's a super nice guy, loves magic a, a ton. Um, there's a bunch of links on Twitter and stuff to a, a GoFundMe to help with his recovery and his, his medical costs. But I do want to take this opportunity to talk about something that i i just want to so like i've been traveling a lot for going to tournaments and sometimes things like back-to-back weekends and that sort of stuff uh can can really wear you down and this is definitely different from you know what happened to him which was a, a serious medical condition that got worse 
uh, because of his traveling. Uh, but I just want to kind of remind everyone to take care of themselves when they're traveling around and going to these tournaments. Like mentally and physically, they can be super stressful. And so if you need to take some time to recharge, like magic will still be there. Uh, I, I've definitely like come back from a long weekend and, and just felt like really, really awful. And at, at that point, like I think it's really important to recognize like what you're doing to yourself and make sure that you're like approaching everything from a, a healthy place. And it's definitely possible to push yourself too hard. And if you like sacrifice your health for magic, I think that you're probably making a mistake at some point. And I think one point I kind of want to make on a piggybacking off of that a little bit is that I know a lot of people who go and play in Grand Prix and don't eat anything throughout the entire like eight rounds of day one or whatever. Just because it's easy to kind of forget about it, right? When you're you're like playing magic and you know it's it's like high in, intense magic playing all day and you're with your friends and it's just easy to just like forget about everything else. But it's really, really important that you still continue to take care of your body throughout your tournament experience. It's something that I've focused on a lot because I noticed that when I don't do that, then my results suffer a lot. And I'm all about maximizing the kind of like outside of magic, you know, uh, equity <laughs> uh, in terms of like, you know, in order to help improve my magic game, especially at these tournaments it's important to make sure that, you know, the rest of your, your mental and physical health is, is doing well. And so if I have any, you know, advice for people going to Grand Prix and stuff, is that if you know that you're one of the people who just kind of goes and forgets about everything and, and then gets a big dinner at the end of the day, there's so many things that you can do to just make it easier for you to make sure that you're eating something. Like, you can, like, go to, like, a, a local grocery store and get, like, some peanut butter and jelly and bread and make yourself a bunch of like you know sandwiches to take to the event or whatever if you don't want to like buy the the food that's there that's going to be way more expensive than it should be or whatever mm-hmm. um also you know i i'm i'm now kind of famous for carrying around a big water jug at these tournaments and that's that's not just like a you know a, a thing that i do for fun it's like i i'm actually drinking a lot of water throughout the tournament <laughs> And I suggest that you do as well. The water jug that I have and carry around, I got at Whole Foods for like <laughs> seven bucks. And it's just one of the better purchases that I've made lifetime. So I, I recommend that if you're, you know, you don't have to get a massive jug, but just like have a water bottle and f- fill it with water. You know, I know a lot of people drink mainly like sodas and other stuff these days, but especially like a Grand Prix weekend, make sure that you're drinking water throughout the tournament so that you're not dehydrated. Because all of this stuff, like not eating, being dehydrated, and all this stuff, it, it does affect you mentally, I promise. But it's also sometimes hard to notice that, that you're being affected mentally. So if you're... Like, you know, if you're one of those people who can really easily get caught up in just like the fun of playing in a Grand Prix, playing a bunch of rounds, hanging out with your friends, all this stuff, and it's easy for you to forget about all the external things, then you're the person who needs to be more aware that you need to take care of yourself at these tournaments. Kind of like a different point, I guess, that you're trying to make, but it's just something that I felt it was important to say that, you know, no, I be think more it's... aware of taking care of yourself. 
I think it's totally connected. And it's like, like, yeah, I think number one, the first reason that you start doing it is like, it is good to, you get equity at the tournament by making sure that you're happy and, and healthy and, and not like starving. But also like, these are important practices to sort of like get you through your entire life, sort of. It's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, you build habits of taking care of yourself. And if you keep up with those habits, then sort of everything gets a little bit easier. Um, and we've kind of moved a little bit far. Like this, I am not sitting here like saying like, Wedge, why didn't you take care of yourself or anything? Like absolutely, like the message to take away from Wedge is like, that that sucks. Like I hope he gets better. I hope he recovers. And I hope that he doesn't get sent into medical bankruptcy because of this situation. But the thing you, the thing everybody can do for themselves is, you know, take a step back, notice when you're pushing yourself too hard and also like do the things you need to do to take care of yourself. And, and I would like for everyone who is listening to this to make sure to take care of themselves. That would make me very happy. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about some magic then? Let's do it. All right. More, more positive news. <laughs> yeah. Cards. So should we start with a keep or mull, I guess? Just yeah, to keep, keep that section. train going. We've got an we've got an interesting one this week. Yeah, so I've been I've been playing a little bit of Tron. I guess it's the dark side. I don't think we actually talk about decks that way. We're we're spikes. We don't care. <laughs> um, but so I've been running Tron through some leagues. I have been definitely taking to heart the sort of like aggressive mulliganing strategy, and I, I've been going to five a lot just because I think you need to with a deck like this. Um, but there's definitely some very interesting hands that pop up when you are trying to figure out exactly how aggressively you need to and what what counts as like, this is keepable because it has the potential to do the thing I want to do. And that's why I think this hand is really interesting. So this hand has uh, Urza's Power Plant, Urza's Tower, two lands. It has two Sylvan Scrying, an Ancient Stirrings, an Ugin the Spirit Dragon, and an Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger. So the way it breaks down is it's got two-thirds of Tron, it's got two green spells that help you find Tron, or three green spells, two Sylvan Scrying and an Ancient Stirring, and then it's got two big payoffs for Tron. It's got an Ugin and an Ulamog. So uh, right off the bat, do you want to give sort of your, your initial impressions of this hand, like just seeing it now for the first time? What do you think looking at it? Yeah, so... So we have two Tron pieces, right? And we have two Sylvan Scryings in our hand. So generally that's a snap-off, right? But we don't have any way of getting green mana. Yep. Is kind of like the idea of this hand. And and this hand has the payoffs where if we get there, we should win, right? So one of the things that I'm looking for in a Tron hand is turn four Tron is where you need to be in order to be competitive in a game, right? And in some matchups, that's not even good enough. And you need mm-hmm. turn three Karn. Right. Or yep. turn three Tron, at least, and then playing something. But because we have the catch-up mechanic of Ugin specifically in our hand, I think that a turn four, eight mana is going to be good enough to to win this game. Right. So when we're looking at this hand, we can assess, all right, what are the chances that we get to turn four Tron with this hand? Right. So we can kind of do the math on how many hits we have in our deck to to turn on Tron, right? Yeah. And, and this is bone stock mono green Tron. Uh, six forests and yeah. four of each of the chromatic artifacts. Right. So so ordinarily a hand like this with like just two pieces is not as good, but because we have the out of just like any green source as well, turning on our 
Tron, then we, we have a lot more outs than normal, right? So let's add them up in our head a little bit real quick. We've got six forests, so that's six sources. We've got four of the remaining Tron piece, so that's ten. We've got eight baubles, whatever you want to call them, the, the mm -hmm. chromatic spheres and chromatic stars, so that's eighteen. And then we also have four expedition maps, which are going to count as well. And that so that brings it up to a whopping 22 hits where we can turn on turn turn four Ugin, right? Mm -hmm. So the, we've got 20, what, we've got 53 cards left in our library, 22 of which are hits. That's about close enough for me to, you know, a two out of five, that's a 40 percenter. So if we're on the draw, uh, we're going to have how many looks, how many turns are we going to have to be able to hit? So if we so from the draw we get our turn one draw step turn two draw step and then turn three we need to hit something so we need to so we have three looks at a forty percenter on the draw so that is in my mind a keep on the draw on the play it's a little different uh, on the play we have our turn two draw step and our turn three draw step and by that time we need to have hit something and yeah. that's only and two really... shots at the forty percenter. And we're really hoping for something on like our turn two draw step. And the 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 really awkward thing is like on the play, like we don't get to turn two Sylvan Scrying off of a bauble because the bauble costs some mana. I mean, we get to ancient stirrings, which might be just as good, yeah. but it's not the guarantee of the Sylvan right. Scrying. Yeah. So that lines up. That lines up turn three seven mana or turn four seven mana if we hit it on turn three, right? Or no, not even because then on turn four we have to do something else. So it's not very great. So we kind of need to hit... So the math is a little more complicated because some of these hits include getting there on by turn three or whatever, but not actually uh, allowing ourselves to turn on the Tron for the next turn. But then some subset of that probability set is us drawing like another, you know, a duplicate Tron piece or whatever, which was not calculated in our 22 outs. And that, if we like hit that on turn two... Then on turn three, we could hit our, our Chromatic Sphere, which could Sylvan Scrying for turn four. Yeah. Right. So it still kind of is a hit in some subsets of, of hitting that card on the last possible turn. Yeah. So I think that that kind of evens out a little bit. So I think that in your if you're doing this math in your head, then you can kind of break it down a little bit to about about a 40 percenter to hit um, and out. And we have three shots on the draw and two shots on the play. And I think that for a seven-card hand, remember that I am more inclined to mulligan risky seven-card hands. Yeah. So I think for a seven-card hand, if I'm on the draw, I'm going to keep this because I have an extra shot at a 40%er, which is really good. Uh, but on the play, I only have two shots at that 40%er. And for a seven-card hand, I'm not very excited about that. So I think I would mulligan on the play and keep on the draw. Sure. Yep. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I pretty much agree completely with that analysis. In the actual game, and, and I, I mostly wanted to, to look at this as a, like, in-the-dark seven-guard hand, because I think the analysis there is, is quite interesting. Um, yeah. This was actually game two on the draw against Boggles. Which oh. made me very much want to keep it because you just got Ugin, which they... I mean, like, you're you're good against Boggles. So maybe this was a mulligan because you just want a hand that, like, definitely functions. But Ugin is unbeatable for them as long as it happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that made me 
more inclined to keep it. I kept it. I drew the expedition map on turn one, and then they stony silenced me turn two, and I immediately just never drew another land. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Only, only drew baubles and expedition maps, which were all outs, but they had the turn two stony. So um, it didn't work Brutal. out, but I think it was a fine keep on the draw against Boggles. Um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, definitely an interesting hand. And, and it's tough. Like, learning how to mulligan properly with Tron, I think, is one of the most important parts of playing the deck for sure and I'm, I'm trying to get it right and i'm definitely not not super confident all of the time but i think i'm doing better than i was when i first started playing the deck yeah and you know people say that tron is an easy deck but just look at all the math that we just did in order to decide whether or not to keep this hand <laughs> you know yeah. uh Whenever somebody says that X is an easy deck or blah, 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 I think that they're just really severely underestimating how difficult Magic the Gathering is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it's, you know, these are decisions that we have to make with, you know, pretty high precision uh, in terms of, like, whether or not our equity is is worth. And it's possible to do the math kind of on the fly. As long as we know our 75, we can pretty easily count up our outs, and then, you know, use that information to determine whether or not it's equitable to keep this hand, right? Yeah, it's, you know, magic's not easy. And, and even yeah. Tron, like, and a decision like this is something that you're going to need to make sure that you, you really kind of hone in on. So, yeah, good example, good hand. I, I think a lot of the flack that, that Tron gets is that it's such an on-off deck that, you know, when it's on, it's probably crushing you. And then you're just like, oh, well... Yeah, I, I didn't have a chance. None of the decisions either of us made mattered. And when it's off, you know, th they've got two Urza's Mines in their graveyard because you Fulminator mage them and the deck just doesn't cast any spells. But the the difference between getting from an off game to an on game, like that's where all of the, the you know, work in piloting the deck goes. And a lot of that is sort of hidden when yeah. you're on the other side of the table. But yeah, magic is, is hard no matter what deck you are playing. So... If you lose to Tron, you lost to Tron. Like, figure out why. Don't go, uh, Tron. Like, that's not that's not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. So the reason that I've been playing Tron is we've mostly got modern stuff coming up. Uh, I've got a GP that I'm playing in in a week and a couple of days. And yeah, so I've mostly been looking at modern results and thinking about modern a lot. Thinking about Cart Clan Ironworks a lot after <laughs> GP Vegas. Yeah. That's worth talking about. Madness. Oh my goodness. Oh my He's goodness. Been on like a tear. 30, 36 and 6 over three GPs, three top eights, and two wins. Oh my god. Yeah. So I don't know how many people are familiar with this storyline, but I, I guess it's worth repeating a little bit. It's that Matt Nass figured out a rules quirk that made. Crack Clan Ironworks way better than I think that anybody else thought it was. Yeah, um, much easier to go I, infinite with. Yeah, right. Much easier to go infinite with. And I can't remember the last time I've heard of something that that even remotely coming close to happening. Yeah, um, it's pretty crazy. The hive mind figures these things out usually. Right. So for those of you who don't know, Crack Clan Ironworks, so so the, the actual card Crack Clan Ironworks, it's a four mana artifact and it says you can sacrifice an artifact 
to add two colorless to your mana pool, right? So that combos with Scrap Trawler, uh, which is a three mana, three two artifact that says whenever an artifact goes to your graveyard from the battlefield, if, if Scrap Trawler sees that happen, then you get to pick up another artifact from your graveyard with converted mana costs less than the artifact that went to the graveyard. Mm -hmm. So when that's happening, you get to essentially cycle through your deck with two mana and one mana artifacts that can be sacrificed to Kalana Ironworks to both draw a card from the artifact sacrifice and adding two mana to your mana pool through the Kalana Ironworks. So something that they realized is that another combo piece that's in this deck is Mirror Retriever. And Mirror Retriever is a 2-mana 1-1 one, one artifact, and it says whenever Mirror Retriever dies, you get to pick up any artifact from your graveyard and put it into your hand. So, generally, if you people have figured out a while ago that if you have two Mirror Retrievers and a Scrap Trawler and a Crackland Ironworks, you go infinite. Because you get to sacrifice those in such a way that you're getting back, you're always like netting a bobble. Or I, I keep on calling these baubles. What's the better term for them? Eggs? Yeah, eggs. Yeah, a so one the, Essentially, egg, the, sure. the chromatic star, the chromatic sphere, and there are a couple of the other ones that that KCI plays as well. But essentially, the the one mana artifacts that can sacri be sacrificed to draw a card. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have, if people figured out a while ago that if you have like two of one piece and then one of the other piece and a Clackland Ironworks and a an egg to recur then you're infinite and you can draw your deck and have infinite mana and kill your opponent however you want to. But Matt Nass figured out something that I don't think that anybody else knew really, which was that if you announce that you're casting a spell, and this spell could just be any of your eggs or just any spell in your deck. Or activating an ability. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Paying, paying a cost with mana, basically. Right. Yeah, anytime that you're paying a cost for, with mana, you can sacrifice simultaneously scrap trawler and mirror retriever so just one of each and that has them both hit the bin at the same time so they both see each other both leave and enter the graveyard when mm -hmm. they trigger and that allows you to uh the scrap trawler sees the mirror retriever hit the graveyard so the mirror tree we now have one scrap trawler trigger seeing the two mana mirror retriever into the graveyard so you get to pick up a one it also sees itself pick, hit, hit, hit the graveyard, so you get to pick up a two. Um, and Mirror Retriever sees itself hit the graveyard, so you get to pick up um, another artifact, just any artifact. And because they're both in the graveyard as those triggers are going on the stack, you get to pick up the Mirror Retriever and the Scrap Trawler. So the, the Mirror Retriever picks up the Scrap Trawler, the Scrap Trawler picks up the Mirror Retriever, and the Scrap Trawler saw the Mirror Retriever hit the graveyard, so you get to pick up a one-mana artifact. And, and you've netted four mana, plus the mana that you're going to get from the, the artifact that you're sacrificing. So it's um, it's positive on mana if you have a... What's the, what's the busted it's, card? It's positive on mana once you have a, a Mox Opal. A Mox Opal is the card, yeah. But it's, I think it's neutral on mana otherwise. Right, it's neutral on mana if all you have is, a, is, is an egg, is a one mana egg. Um, but it's plus one card every time. You just get to draw the card from right. the... I, I guess yeah. this doesn't work with Chromatic Sphere, but as long as it's Chromatic Star, you get to draw a card every time you do this. And so eventually you'll find a Mox Opal, and then you can add that Mox Opal to the cycle, and right. that and then allows you mana. to generate infinite right. mana. 
Yeah, so essentially he figured out this weird rules quirk that is hard to describe even now, you know, because <laughs> this deck yeah. is so complicated. And essentially that allowed him to infinite combo people with just the, just like one of each of those, which is a pretty crazy thing that's happening, right? So I don't remember the last time in Magic that somebody's like stumbled across this like new rules quirk or whatever that like just busted a deck, I feel like, wide open and just made it way more consistent. He's killing people left and right so easily. It feels like one of those legendary stories from like the old days of magic yeah like yeah like it does feel uh, like that there was a a card there was an instant that put into play three uh two two knights the the deck was called white lightning because it it played a card called waylay which you could which was an instant that put three white knights with first strike into play and there during like the sixth edition rules change the like end of turn step was created and it turned out that hey if you cast waylay at the end of your opponent's turn then you could untap and you could attack them with these knights that were only supposed to block which gave like white a ball lightning ability and so that that like like that's a legendary story of the like development of tournament magic and rules changes and stuff but that feels like a thing that can only happen 15 years ago but like here's matt nass like doing it right now yeah it's pretty crazy um because we've been talking a lot recently about how we live in the information age right where all of this information is accessible to people who know how to go and look out look for it right but the fact that matt nass was able to like you know play these tournaments knowing this thing that probably nobody else did you know other yep. than the people that he was testing with get a, um, get a judge that, called on him every single round i'm sure <laughs> right yeah i'm sure yeah it works like what now yeah that's that's pretty crazy and honestly really cool and it just makes his two grand prix wins feel so deserved right he's put in the Absolutely. work he's figured stuff out so that's that's awesome that list is so good now like with the the three explosives main yeah even main deck cards that like Eidolon and stuff is not necessarily going to beat you you have strong answers to that you have answers to everything like, you can even kill like four mana permanents if your opponent puts like a ley line into play post board like even if you don't have a, a nature's claim you can just kill it with an explosives and that's the, the deck is very very resilient i so, remember watching a match from coverage where matt nass is playing against humans and humans has four meddling mages out a selfless spirit and two freebooters on the battlefield <laughs> right against matt nass's combo deck yeah seems good four meddling mages and and matt nass just like untaps and kills him the next turn and we're like <laughs> how <laughs> how is that possible yeah um or he doesn't kill him next turn but he uses like a engineer explosives to just like annihilate the other guy's board because he can he can play it sacrifice it get his opponent to sacrifice his selfless spirit and then recur it because he put it on two and he had some some two mana artifacts in play and a scrap trawler so mm -hmm. the the engineered explosives kills the two mana rocks that he has and then they bring back the engineer explosives and he can play it again for two and then sacrifice it on his opponent's upkeep yeah to get all of the rest of his twos and that is just you know what world are we living in <laughs> I thought that four meddling mages would be a lock for sure. We're, we're living in a world where not enough meddling mages were naming engineered explosives, I guess. But 
Well, yeah, so that's hard. the thing, is that it's like, easy to kind of look back at that and say, oh, should have named engineered explosives. But the the names that the meddling mages were on all were necessary yeah. uh, in order to not die. Because right, it was like Ironworks his... and, and Lightning Bolt and I think like an Anger of the Gods or something like that. They were all like calls that made a lot of sense at the time, for sure. So he saw, he saw a... He knew his. He knew Matt was playing Bolts post board, so he mm-hmm. named Bolts. So that makes sense. And uh, he had to name Crackling and Ironworks, otherwise he's gonna die. And yep. then he had to name the gear per Aether Grid that he saw in Matt Nass's hand from one oh, of the free right, looters. Right, right, right. But the fourth one, yeah, the fourth one he played, and Matt had a Inventor's Fair open to sacrifice mm-hmm. that turn, mm-hmm. and the humans player could not beat a Worm Coil engine. His board just lost oh, to Worm okay. Coil Engine. So right, he had to right. name Worm Coil Engine, and then Matt just found the engineered explosives and killed him with it. So he was he, the Humans player with four meddling mages out was actually just 0% to win from that point. Gotcha. Right. Because either way. So that's crazy. <laughs> oh, man. I love that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, that's... I wrote about it in my article this week, so hashtag plugs. I'm going to you should check that out. <laughs> Star, StarCityGames.com? StarCityGames.com. Where, where I can find your article? Fantastic. That's, it just went up uh, 10 minutes ago as we're recording oh. this. So that's awesome. Fun. Yeah, so, you know, that's definitely part of the success of Kark Clan Ironworks is like, number one, you know, Matt Nass figured out how to make this work. Um, and this weekend was sort of a, a big coming out party for the deck. There were five in the top 32 of GP yeah. Vegas. There were two in the top eight. Andrew Beckstrom came in ninth with it. Uh, Zach Elsick lost a win and into the top eight. And Shaheen, who's been on this deck for a long time, I actually played against him at an invitational like a year ago when he was on this deck, but Shaheen also made top 32. So that's five Ironworks decks in the top 32. This deck is very, very real. And I, I, I think it's good now that it's it's more visible because hopefully, you know, this will help People like when I played against Shaheen, I didn't really know what was going on, and so I, you know, wasn't super prepared for the deck. And I don't think I've like made huge mistakes or anything, but I definitely, you know, that sort of like punch drunk feeling when like something is happening to you and you're not totally sure how to stop it from happening. Hopefully, that doesn't really happen to people who are paying attention anymore because this deck is here now and it's important to learn how to play against it. Yeah, yeah. I, I seriously think that this deck is going to be a, a pretty big part of the metagame moving forward for a couple of different reasons. I think that it's been demonstrated that it's a powerful enough deck to, you know, to really compete, especially with the new understanding that we have of how you can go infinite with less pieces and the fact that it kind of, you know, it, it's won two Grand Prix in a row and, and that is going to be what people look at when looking for you know good decks to play or whatever so it's also going to have the popularity piece in, in like the upcoming weeks and tournaments and stuff so yeah you definitely want to be prepared for it moving forward i think yeah what a weird deck to like uh it's kind of funny the deck is almost free to build except for mox opals and engineered explosives which are like six hundred dollars between them <laughs> and then <laughs> Then the yeah. rest of the deck costs like $150 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you've got 
Mox Opals and engineered explosives already, like you can just build this deck and, and practice with it. I That would have been my plan. Like if I were at home right now and I could just borrow those cards uh, or get them yeah. easily, then I would just, I would be just trying to make this deck work. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. and not make the deck work like it needs tweaking, like make the deck work, like figure out how to pilot it because it does not, it is not an easy deck to pilot. Uh, even, yeah. even harder than Tron. Oh yeah. I mean, Clackland Annihilax, I think ranks up there with Amulet Titan and some other weird combo decks in terms of difficulty to play. Right. Just very fiddly. Even when you're going off, you need to, you need to know a lot of really important stuff to 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 be able to kill with it so yep yeah and i think a lot of that can just come from like understanding the different combo lines and interactions like okay i've got these three pieces like this is what i can do i've got i've got no mirror retriever but i've got a, a scrap trawler out and uh no iron works yet but like here is how i make the scrap trawler work for me by sacrificing you know these permanents i i want to get my engineer explosives back with it like there's a bunch of like like i I have this arrangement of permanents so i'm capable of doing this and i think once you've played against the deck a few times you start seeing them once you've played with the deck a few times you really start seeing them and uh it, it becomes a little less daunting after you've like identified sort of those discrete situations but it there's still you know lots of novel situations that come up for sure. And I think that it would be beneficial for anybody who's trying to play in some modern tournaments coming up to see if they can goldfish the deck just in order to understand how it goes off so that you can better understand how to prevent it from going off. Yeah, I think that's huge. Yeah, one of the best ways to really understand a deck is just to pick it up and goldfish it for a little bit. And you can just do that online through some like... Uh, simulators, you know, it's a goldfish deck, so you can just go to tappedout.net. Yeah, tappedout.net. You can import a deck list, and just you can just import Matt Nass's winning deck list, and then from there you can play test with it essentially, and that's just like goldfishing it, and so it'll draw you like a sample hand, and you can move permanents around on the screen and everything, and uh, you can just kind of use that to goldfish it or whatever. I recommend that everybody who's planning on playing modern coming up does that and just tries to get a feel for how the deck functions a little bit it will it will give you a lot of insight into the the crucial parts of it going off so that you can understand how to better disrupt it if you're playing any sort of disruptive strategy or even you know even if you have like a few dismembers in your sideboard then you you know you're going to want to know which where to interrupt your opponent when they're going off and they have a scrap trawler in play or something like that. It's it's just really invaluable information to that you can only really give yourself if you sit down and, and start going through it and everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in general, I think, right, you're trying to kind of trap your opponent after committing a couple of resources. I, like a decent rule of thumb is like as early in their like cycling of things you want to kill their Clark Clan Ironworks and you want to kill that that scrap trawler, um, but different situations definitely call for more patience. And if like that's not good enough, you might need to wait to see if they 
you know, commit more stuff from their their hand into the sacrifice or something. And it, it, it definitely probably like somebody needs to write an article and just like post a bunch <laughs> of pictures of situations and be like, this is when I cast my nature's claim. Um, yeah. But in, in general, I found like getting like if they've got an ironworks, like it, you need to kill it as soon as possible into their like cycling through stuff as you can. And that's usually not going to go wrong at, as badly as waiting unless you have some very specific reason to wait. Yeah, I mean, barring having a, a much deeper understanding of it all, I think that y- y- your best default is to snap that off as soon as you get priority. So, and mm-hmm. that could be like either like a dismember on their uh, scrap trawler or a nature's claim on their crackline ironworks. Mm-hmm. As soon as you get priority to target one of those spells with your removal spell, you should do so. And your opponent is going to be setting up a lot of things where they are going to be minimally punished by you destroying their pieces. Like, a lot of the time, you... And this is part of what makes the deck so powerful, is that the Crack Clan Ironworks player can set up a scenario where they play their Scrap Trawler, and as soon as you get priority, you kill it. And then in response to you killing it, they sacrifice a bunch of stuff, getting value off the Scrap Trawler, and then sacrifice the Scrap Trawler itself to pick up a lot of this stuff. And then at that point, they've either found another Scrap Trawler or a way to pick it up from their graveyard later, and they can continue to go off from there because they have so much mana. So if you can if you can do do whatever you can to minimize the number of things that they can do with their scrap trawler, the the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And if you can prevent them from having a board with both of those cards on it, Carclan Ironworks and Scrap Trawler, like if they've got one and they cast the other, like you really want to kill the other in response if you possibly can. Because oh, yeah. once they're both on there, they're going to have priority. You can cast a removal spell on one. It's it's a pretty weird situation where I've got a shatter effect in my hand and they cast the ironworks and I don't want to kill the scrap trawler in response. Like the ironworks is absolutely super important to the deck, but the scrap trawler is also like completely insane as well. But yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the specific situation, what they have access to. It's, it's all experience based really and and hard to give like general guidelines uh, especially without like acknowledging like you're playing a specific deck how much graveyard hate you have yeah and it's it's definitely like a deck that it's not only resilient because it can deal with having its permanence destroyed but like it's also pretty resilient against you know graveyard hate and stony silence and stuff i mean stony silence is definitely the best card against the deck but there's a reason why there are for nature's claims after board rest in peace is not super great against it because uh with all the inventors fares and engineered explosives it's easy to get the rest in peace off the table and then combo off at least stony silence keeps the deck from from cycling through and and keeps inventors fair from getting engineered explosives but yeah the, the deck is very resilient and definitely has the weapons to fight right through hate cards and, and even like exiling their graveyard a couple of times like it doesn't take a ton of resources for them to go off uh so i, I think that's why a deck like like grixis death shadow is is such a a tough deck for for the ironworks deck to beat because like establishing a threat and then holding up a way to keep the ironworks from ever hitting the board is a really really powerful strategy yeah the more you can do to keep those permanents off the battlefield the better definitely and and like just doing that isn't enough like from the top eight games like watching you know 
Ben had several answers to the things that were going on, but like when he wasn't able to put down an early Gurmag Angler or early Death Shadow, like it just didn't matter. Like trade you trade cards for for their stuff, and then eventually they land something and then just kill you. Like you have yeah. to be pressuring them, or it's it's not gonna work. Yeah, the resiliency of of Crackland Ironworks is is really insane. Is that like they can they can just kind of like spin their wheels for a little bit, and you know you can be disrupting them while they do that, but then they're just always going to get to a critical mass of just like, okay, it's time to kill you. Um, yeah. So that's that's pretty crazy. Yep. And I think, you know, obviously, like, Matt Nass has been consistently successful with this for a while, but other people are now succeeding with the deck. I think this was a great choice in, like, a Jeskai Control-heavy metagame. Like, this top eight of, like, Ironworks and Tron, this is not... But I think I think Jeskai got beat up pretty hard this weekend as, as part of the story of what happened. Yeah, for sure. Like, playing all spot removal is not really a winning strategy in, in modern at this moment. Yeah, it, it definitely feels that way. But, you know, it's kind of hard to balance because people played a lot of that deck because humans was around so much. So it was, like, the mm-hmm. reaction. And that deck is, like, the spot removal decks, right? Um, right but right. now it's just time to, you know, shift over into the new metagame, which is seems to be more Tron-oriented. So the cycle, the the modern wheel spins again. <laughs> yes, it definitely you has know. spun again. And I mean, I honestly, I don't hate humans in this like particular metagame situation that we're in. Like, I don't. It may not be a deck that like preys on Ironworks or anything like that, but it certainly establishes a clock and disrupts them. And if you're hitting them, then you know, like, like that that game situation that we saw with all those meddling mages in play. Like that that draw, while it had a lot of disruption, again didn't have a clock. There weren't mantis riders hitting his opponent. So as long as you have a human's draw that has some disruptive elements and some beatdown elements, then the matchup, you know, can be can be pretty okay. And obviously like humans is fine against everything that's not Jeskai, which I would not want <laughs> to play going forward. So Right. So yeah, you know, you never know. If um if you ever want to pick that deck up again, but uh, again, I, I wrote about that in my in my article on Star City Games, where humans feels very tuned towards in modern, so that's also kind of like a detriment to it. Um, mm-hmm. But right, people playing lots of different named answers to the board that that yeah, humans yeah. can present, that sort of thing. It's it's getting pretty crazy, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So and and three main deck engineered explosives out of Crookline Ironworks that can like continually cycle them back into play like that that is legitimately really bad for humans. Yeah, that's a um, big game for sure. So I don't know if that merits some sort of you know specific like humans doesn't want a sideboard in pithing needle, but I wonder if there's a, a better answer that makes like engineered explosives not as good. If there's some sort of creature that it could run that because um, a lot of different decks well, you are got meddling mage now, right? And yep. then potentially you could run like Phyrexian. Re- re- yeah, that's uh, true. You could run Revokers card? or something. Revoker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, Revoker. Yeah, I mean, you got a, some options. Revoker is an excellent. I mean, Revoker is just more meddling mages against Ironworks, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and it's not a bad card against Tron and stuff, especially like right. you know, it's it's a good combo with Freebooter. So that might be a thing. But it's it's just so hard to name everything. You know, we saw that one game where the guy had f- drew literally all four of his actual meddling mages and was just right. 0% to win. 
which yeah. is so <laughs> <Yeah>. ridiculous. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, that's just why you need your Mantis Riders. Like, Mantis uh, Riders... Well, best, yeah. You get a best card in modern, right? Dead. You gotta draw your... You gotta draw yeah. that clock, or else, like, none of this stuff matters, because these decks... Like, same thing with Tron. Like, you can draw as many meddling mages you wa- as you want against Tron, but if you're not threatening their life total... Like, if all your meddling mages are in play sitting there, like, staring at a Thrag Tusk or something, like, it, right, it doesn't right. matter. Y- yeah. You need and to that was part them. of the problem with that game, too, because because Matt had just, like, two Scrap Trawlers chilling on the yep. battlefield. So the only pressure that his human's opponent was able to put on was, like, the one Selfless Spirit and the two Kite Freebooters, which just, yeah. like, wasn't not, as big as a flock as it could have yeah. Like, the deck just has so many so. tutors for so many answers that eventually it's going to get out of it. And it's it's... Yeah. You know, like, keep talking about Tron, but I think Tron's one of the most important decks in the format. Like, this is one of the the important things to understand about playing against Tron, too, is, like, you can't just play Blood Moon. Blood Moon doesn't beat Tron. Like, you need that clock in... Because they have Oblivion Stone, and eventually they're going to get to five mana, and they're going to kill all your stuff, including your Blood Moon and any number of Spreading Seas or whatever, whatever disruption you're playing. Like, having a clock in Modern is so important. And, like, I... I tried playing a couple of leagues with Mardu Pyromancer, and it's just not fun. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, just like the things that my opponents were doing are so powerful, and I was struggling so hard to lock them out from doing those things. And like one little misstep, like one misuse of Arakto's charm against Kark Clan Ironworks, one incorrect. It's like slightly incorrect. I mean, maybe there's not even slightly. Maybe just one wrong thought sees. Like one mistake with thought sees, and like Tron just runs you. I mean, Tron is barely beatable with that deck, anyways. But <laughs> it's just so hard to play like these ultra mid rangey decks. Um, and I I'm trying to cultivate that skill set a little more, but I think it's going to take time. And like in none of my upcoming modern events am I going to be ready to run a deck like Mardu Pyromancer. And, and maybe this is sort of a, a training wheels thing, but I'm at this moment still not interested in playing any deck that doesn't have the ability to just do something ultra-powerful that crushes my opponent. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's just what Modern's all about. I've been playing a lot of Infect online recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just definitely. Aaron Barrett's Aaron 75. And one thing that I've noticed is that I've been able to say... Uh, I've been playing a lot with my roommate Jeremy. He's just been, you know, hanging out and playing with me on Magic Online. And then I've been saying, I've like turned to him and said like, like many, many times, all right, well, if our opponent taps out, he's dead, right? Yeah. So that's just a crazy concept in Modern where, you know, everybody's trying to be really proactive, right? But if you could play a deck where if your opponent taps out, they die, then you're in such a huge advantage, right yeah you're you're limiting their options in a way like it's it's like a stone rain yeah like you know i, I feel like I've, i stone rain my opponents just by playing my creatures right you know i, I play a creature and i have a land uh, i have a land up to protect it and then they are locked in on holding up a mana for the rest of the game at least even if they don't have it they just have to do that otherwise they're just gonna die right and sometimes yep. they hold up a mana and i can't kill them way more often than than I think it, people realize is that like you know the infect player has to have it and mm-hmm. you always kind of have to be afraid that the infect player has it right so so our opponents just kind of like are locked into respecting the fact that the infect player can kill them out of anywhere 
and that just like puts on so many constraints on what they are can and should be doing with their own proactive game plan and i think that you know there are a lot of decks that have similar concepts like that like crack clarion honor works it's just another deck where all right well if you tap out you're dead <laughs> so right. that's like a pretty crazy thing Yep. Um, yep, we saw that in the top eight. Like Ben had to tap out to try to like find a threat, and then finally played uh, a Gurmag Angler with his last mana, and then he just died. I, I don't think he played wrong because he needed to get that threat on the board, but yeah, it just like gives you that you know Gitaxian probe basically. Like okay, I just I can kill you now, and I, yeah. I do yeah. I don't really want to play a deck that doesn't have that as a as an option. Like, that's one of the reasons that I've probably overplayed Living End to such an extent that, like, I am much better with Living End than any other deck in Modern, uh, and it's probably a problem at this point, but my, like, my lifetime win rate with Living End is way higher than everything else. But part of that is I... Yeah, I, I made finals I, of an open, that's great. Yeah, it's not bad, and I, I consistently do better in leagues with it than with anything else, like, my lifetime win percentage is just way higher. Uh... And, like, a big part of that is understanding when... I mean, number one, when to go for it when, yeah, the spell could get countered and I might lose the game on the spot. And that's that's something that I'm still working on with, with lots of different decks. But another part of it is just, like, you know, people sometimes have to tap out or sometimes choose to tap out when they shouldn't. And being able to capitalize on those either, like, awkward draws or mistakes... You can't do that when you're casting Lingering Souls. You can do that when you are, whether it's casting Tr casting Karn or casting Living End or casting Vines of the Vastwood on your Glistener Elf. Like being able to capitalize on that stuff, I, I I'm not comfortable playing a deck that doesn't have that ability in some way. Yeah, right. I agree. There's just so much equity to be gained by doing that. That you know it seems like that's just kind of you know what you what you want to be doing i actually do like like ben's list quite a bit his death shadow list like if i'm gonna play oh, yeah. a mid-range deck this seems much closer to something that i could stomach because it also gives you the ability to just be super proactive right 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 so he's got no coligan's commands he's got two main deck battle rages like this is a deck that i mean he's got coligan's commands on the board but none main deck like no spell over two mana main deck no spell that you actually cast for over two mana main deck and just a pretty aggressive build that is capable of killing uh like he cut the serum visions and no ops and is running mishra's baubles instead because costing zero mana is just that important and i think uh it's designed around presenting a threat very early on and then disrupting you just long enough to deal 20 damage with it and that's something i for a relatively mid-rangey deck i think that i can get behind that yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of sums up my thoughts on, on what's going on in Modern right now. Yeah. This is a weird, like, philosophizing about Modern sort of thing. <laughs> so check check me if I'm going too far with this. Okay. But I think that... So we've got Jason Blood Raid Elf in the format now. So the mid-range decks, whether they're blue or they're Jun decks, you know, they have different strategies. But the mid-range decks have something pretty powerful available to them once they hit four mana. And I think what that has sort of done is push down the critical turn of the format and decks want to be able to present like very, very scary, potentially game ending threats like before that. So decks like 
Kirkland Ironworks, which have a critical turn of around turn four. Decks like Infect, which have a critical turn of like three, 3.5, something like that. Um, I think that the existence of Jason Bloodbraid Elf have encouraged these decks to exist because if you're capable of ending the game because somebody taps up for a threat, that makes those decks just almost unable to function against you. Like any hand with Jace is just a mulligan against Kirkland Ironworks until like turn eight or something like that. And so that's why we're seeing the rise of these like very fast combo decks. And I think Modern is getting pushed to a place where like people are doing things real, real quick. Tron is, does not kill you on turn three, but it can really, you know, mess you up before then so it's a like kind of weird exception to presenting an actual lethal threat but I, I think modern right now is at a place where it's kind of it's getting to be sort of the fastest almost that it's ever been and you know so like i would never play a deck like valica right now i think that's that's not a deck you can play it you can't play like a resilient slow combo e deck I, I think you gotta be this is this is a sonic the hedgehog format right now so we gotta go fast gotta go fast yeah yeah i mean i'm in i'm 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 down for that and and i think that philosophy just applies to modern always and sometimes we forget about it but you gotta go fast yeah yeah look at this deck that won the ptq on magic online oh gotta go fast indeed yeah it's got 28 one mana one red mana creatures four burning tree emissaries and four reckless bushwhackers like every card in this deck costs one mana it's nuts I mean, yeah. So, so this is this is eight whack. I I actually went ahead and bought because the the cards that I were missing for the deck, I I was missing like fifty dollars worth of cards, and forty dollars of them were <laughs> Legion loyalists. So I went ahead and ordered <laughs> them because I owned all the real cards already. But yeah, like this deck, it, literally all it does is go fast, and it won the PTQ. Mm-hmm. So that's and what it has some right interesting now. additions to the sideboard. I don't know if we want to take some time to talk about that. Yeah, so the sideboard had some interesting additions that were that are recent in the new set from Dominaria. It's running four mm-hmm. goblin chain whirlers in the sideboard of yeah. this of this mono red goblins deck, which is yeah. hilarious and honestly <laughs> makes a lot of sense in modern. Like there are a lot of decks that can just get hosed by chain whirler. Yeah, good um, luck, Mardu Pyromancer. Mardu Pyromancer, in fact, human sometimes. It's just crazy how often that this card could be like surprisingly good. And then it's also running two Flame of Keld. Uh, this is the Saga that is two mana that says discard your hand for the first one. The second one's draw two cards. And then the third one is if a red source you control would deal damage to a permanent or player this turn, it deals that much damage plus two to that permanent or player instead. So when you've just got a bunch of goblins turning sideways, that is a ton of damage. Yeah, I um, guess is this... So that's Do we think this crazy. is a board card for, like, against removal heavy decks to like make your cards count for more or something like that i'm not sure exactly it helps against like grindy decks where you plan on dumping your hand really quickly and then needing to rejuice later Mm -hmm. um if i had to guess yeah could be one other cool thing about this deck is it can be easily modifiable if these sideboard cards aren't doing it for you if you run one sacred foundry in the main deck then you can run uh rest in pieces and stony silences in your board for relatively low cost so that could be a place that that you want to go with something like this because those cards are best when they're just buying you a little time and you're applying a clock and this this deck is nothing if not a clock but yeah that's you know that's just modern recently yeah gotta go fast Gotta go fast. I love it. That's great. So, yeah, we've got 
a bunch of M19 cards spoiled. I think since we're we you know we talked for quite a while already, so maybe we should only talk about a couple of these. And I mean we're we're gonna do a set review anyways, so it's not like we're gonna miss any cards. Um, yeah, I think some of the highlights, I guess, are like one that's worth talking about right now. I think is uh, Alpine Moon, which is the single red enchantment. When it comes into the battlefield, choose a non-basic land card name. Lands your opponent's control with the chosen card name, lose all land types and abilities, and they gain add one mana of any color. So yep. this is kind of like a... It's like a meddling mage for lands, I guess? Yeah. Where a, you're yeah, turning... Yeah, that's a good way to think about it, I guess. You're turning specific lands that your opponent has into just, like, no abilities you're giving them all of the mana abilities. So you can't right. color screw your opponent with this. It, in fact, it does the opposite. It color fixes them. But it can name things like Ghost Quarter or Wasteland or Valkut the Molten Pinnacle or Urza's Tower. I think there's yeah. like a lot of utility in this card that is interesting and not really oppressive, which I really like. And just a note, that it does work against Tron because Tron functions based on the land types of the Tron pieces. So if you take the land types away from one of the Tron pieces, then none of them work. So it does shut down Tron. Yeah, yeah. Right, so there's a lot of utility to this that makes a lot of sense, but isn't just like game over like Blood Moon can be. So that's really cool. And I think that if I'm going to speculate on anything, they might be printing this with eyes towards keeping this effect around in modern, but banning blood moon itself we'll see so that's so that's a that's a thought i hope i i definitely like hope that that's something that they're thinking about but i don't know i feel like we might have like had this this thought before like with damping sphere and stuff i don't know hope it'll happen someday i guess but (laughs) we'll see yeah Um, fingers crossed but just to just like okay now it seems like we're in a reasonable spot to be able to just ban blood moon because the, yep. the decks that keep in check, we have so many other effects now in recent printings, such as Damping Sphere, Alpine Moon, um, mm-hmm. Blood Sun, you know. All of these effects are like kind of doing what Blood Moon did, but just like in a more balanced and better way. And that right. feels like now we can just get rid of it. And you, know? you don't just randomly beat people who didn't like draw their fetch lands in their opening hand or something like that right so, yeah yeah exactly yeah i mean i like i like how this card costs one mana uh you know if you're if this is a sideboard card that you're putting in your deck like to beat tron it goes well with like curving out and trying to kill them and also doing this to disrupt them for a little while you know because like blood moon gets oblivion stoned this gets oblivion stoned but it doesn't disrupt your aggressive curve in the way that taking a whole turn to cast Blood Moon does. So if that's mm. your goal, like this can be pretty powerful for that sort of thing. Right, right, for sure. It also only does it for your opponent's lands. So like in standard, this could shut down, in a control mirror, this could shut down your opponent's uh, Ascantas while keeping your Ascantas working, or it can shut down your opponent's Field of Ruins while your Fields of Ruins still work to kill their Ascantas and stuff. So, you know, this could see some, like, kind of unexpected uses. Like, they've said that a lot of these rares are... And and they are clearly targeted towards Eternal formats. 
but we have some utility lands in standard that could make a card like this actually do something. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I guess, that's kind of like the, the most interesting one, I think, that they've printed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they are printing a lot of stuff in, with eyes on eternal formats, like Amulet of Safekeeping. It's a two-mana artifact. It says, whenever you become the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter that spell or ability unless its control pays one. And creature tokens get minus one, minus zero. This is the least elegant modern storm hoser they possibly could have printed. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just storm is bad, okay, and and then we're gonna get rid of both of their win cons with this card. <laughs> yeah, I think this <laughs> card just hilarious. doesn't work against storm though, right? It's like, just it's, makes... it's just another it's just another rock that prevents them from doing what they want to do, and they're yeah. built very specifically to get those off of the battlefield. So you cast this, and your opponent goes, "Oh, what's that? Okay, I'll echo each with it and untap and kill you." Yeah, um, and they can do. It doesn't or, matter what the rock is, or like like that's that's their plan that they have to go with against damping sphere or against specifically against like thorn because it's hard to do any sort of cantripping and stuff. This like they can combo off, and then once they've drawn their whole deck, they can they can echoing truth it. Like, the only thing it does before they cast their Storm card is makes Gifts Ungiven cost one more mana, which is a thing, but you spent, you know, a whole turn casting this, so they probably could afford for their Gifts to cost one more mana. And then they're just gonna Gifts three times and Past in Flames twice, and then cast their Echoing Truth whenever they feel like it, and then cast their Grave Shot. So, uh, I think this card doesn't do anything against Storm. <laughs> and I, I guess... Like, maybe it, like, makes things just awkward enough for them, and also, you in a sum deck, you can sideboard it in against Burn, and that's just enough utility that, like, some specific deck wants this sideboard card. But I'm not very impressed with this. Yeah, yeah. It, it just, I don't know. I agree. So there's a bunch more cards, but I think we'll, we'll probably mostly leave them for the set review, because we do want to make sure to get to our Patreon question of the week before we have to go. Unless there's anything specific that you wanted to to make sure to talk about, uh, no, I I think that covers covers that for the moment, for sure. Cool. So in our Discord, Josh asked, I don't know quite how to word this correctly, but I'm going to try. On the topic of going into autopilot with a certain deck, how do you choose what deck to pick up after that? Is it purely based on what deck looks interesting to you? Should you put yourself outside of your comfort zone and change to a style of deck you don't usually play? So I think this is mostly targeted. To, uh, towards you because you've talked about picking up death shadow when you you felt like you know humans was uh you, you weren't playing to the best of your abilities with humans yeah i think there there are so many reasons to pick up a, a new deck it's hard to pin down exactly why somebody in a vacuum should pick up a particular deck the but it's always good to have a reason right and i think that i've always had a reason why I've decided to switch over to something new. The reason why I switched over to Grixis Death Shadow after Humans was because it, for me, was the polar opposite of playing on autopilot. I, I specifically was gearing towards wanting to make myself play something that required all of my focus, and Grixis Death Shadow was the best opportunity for that because Grixis Death Shadow, you have to be on 100% every turn starting from turn one, in order to play it mm -hmm. well enough to win, right? So that was what drew me to Grixis Death Shadow. But I'm also considering switching now to Infect a little bit, 
because I think that that deck is well positioned in the format, and I'm I'm trying to win SCG Atlanta. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, so that's another reason is that because I'm I'm I've kind of like metagamed a little bit, and I'm picking up another deck, and at the same time, in fact, still fulfills a lot of those. Uh, requirements for me of if you, you addition similarly to gracious astrado you need to be playing very optimally in order to win with infect um another draw that i have towards infect is that i've been uh looking more and more into psychology and magic getting inside your opponent's head getting reads on what your opponent has getting your opponent to feel like they are behind just through posturing and the way that you go about things live, right? And I think that Infect has just an infinite number of opportunities to to utilize that. So mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of going to be my next big focus is I'm going to be concentrating really hard in paper magic to try to utilize some of those psychological factors. I know that Tom Ross was really good at that specific subset of playing in paper magic tournaments and that was one of the things i really respected about him and i want to give it a shot i think that i've been playing tournament magic long enough to be able to have a good read on my opponents to know what they have in their hands and and i've been able to do that a lot recently with the other decks that i've been playing i think that that's part of why i had so much success with meddling mage is that i my ability to know what you have based on your plays is one of my bigger skills in magic and I think that Infect is going to be able to utilize that kind of in a different way, maybe a more nuanced way. Because a Meddling Mage, I know you have, I'm going to name the card in your hand, right? But with Infect, I can kind of tell whether or not you have the removal spell, or if you're bluffing me, or a bunch of other stuff. Um, and I can make you feel like I have it. So, I don't know, these are just things that are interesting to me and part of why I enjoy the game. And I, I want to play a deck that can can better optimize that. So that's kind of like my next, like pet project i guess in magic uh, so as long as you have kind of like whatever you're enjoying the most in in your playing magic if you can play a deck that kind of optimizes that and allows you to explore kind of like new areas of of magic play and that could be as simple as i want to win so i want to play the best deck i'm gonna play tron that's the reason to play a deck and it sounds like that's what chris is after is he wants to play the best position deck so he's gonna play tron and that makes sense uh, because he he's has that reason. So whatever reasons you're looking for, I would I would dig into those reasons and come up with some sort of other deck to to kind of fit whatever your objectives are in Magic at the moment. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I think that's 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 really good. I'm I'm definitely approaching it from a slightly different angle. One one thing that I've been dealing with, and and I mentioned it a little earlier this episode even, is I I played so much living end that i i felt like a lot of my other modern skills kind of atrophied a little bit when you play a deck like that that's so all in on on one plan um the range of cards that you care about out of your opponents becomes very limited and so like one of the things that i was running into when i would play other decks is that you know my my opponent would you know i'd play a creature deck and then my opponent would like fatal push, snapcaster, fatal push, and like, even though like I knew that that could happen, I didn't have that like gut like, all right, what happens if they have a fatal push and a snapcaster mage? Because I had been playing a deck for so long that those cards did not matter against. Um, 
And so one thing that I've been trying to do is play more, like, quote-unquote, normal decks. And, like, yeah, Tron is not a deck that, like, if they have Fatal Push and Snapcaster Mage, like, you're, it's a really big deal. Um, and so Tron is not necessarily the best example of this, but I am trying to make myself play a wider range of decks just because there are skills that kind of got left behind by spending so much time playing one deck that I love to play and I think is often better positioned than, than people think it is. But I definitely, you know, like my my ability to play a mid-range deck in modern is so far behind my ability to play a mid-range deck in standard because I yeah. I don't have that like that gut, like, uh, my opponent's going to cast Coligan's Command on this turn, and what is that going to mean to me? Like, that, that like, instinct isn't there the same way as the instinct for, like, all right, my opponent wants to cast Teferi on this turn, how do I stop them from doing that? So I'm trying to cultivate that a little better by playing a wider range of decks. And so, you know, my, my problem is not as much that, like, autopilot thing, it's more along the lines of like I've limited my abilities in a way that I think is is bad for my growth as a magic player. And I'm trying to get out of that funk in modern a little bit. And I've been trying for a while, um, and I'm getting slightly better at it. Uh we'll we'll see what happens and if I do actually end up playing Tron. We'll see if the <laughs> wheel is in the right place for Tron. I I I think uh, right now, my Barcelona decks, I've kind of narrowed it down to, you know, Living End is a possibility. If Tron feels really bad, I'm most likely to play Tron as long as it's still in an okay place. And I might just play 8-Wac because... Uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> oh, see. Yeah. I'll, run a, I'll run a couple of leagues. They probably will take about 45 minutes apiece and we'll see what happens in them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, but, you know, similarly to me, you have your personal objectives that you're working on. You're trying to get better at specific skill sets in modern specifically, and you're trying to play decks or whatever in order to facilitate that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. Like, I, I, yeah. I've identified a problem in my game, and I'm trying to fix that. That's my goal. Yeah. And, right. Right. I'm, I'm trying to do the things that will accomplish my goal. So, yeah. So to, I guess to sum up the answer to our quest to his question is that like search for a goal that you are trying to accomplish, getting better in some specific subset, like whatever your personal objectives are, and then maybe play something that is can can help with that. I think is like a good way to guide you in the right direction. If 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 the question that you're asking is what do I play next? Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, that's all I have. For that question, so I guess I think we talked about plenty for today. I think it's it's about time <laughs> to wrap this episode up. So thanks so much to everybody for listening. If you'd like to find us on the internet, you can find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at MTG underscore Grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Uh, you can find us at our website, mtggrindcast.com, and you can head there if you'd like to support us on Patreon, or you can head to our Patreon directly at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. And by the time this episode is up, we'll have uh, revamped uh, a couple of the tiers and sort of uh, changed up, uh, added some some stretch goals for you know some new content and some some merch so, you know, keep an eye out for that and we'll we'll announce like each goal as we start getting closer to them and, and you know 
this stuff interests you and you want to support us, that would be super fantastic. It, it, it really helps us like keep making the show and, and keep making it better and, and spend more time on it. And, and we, we'd like to be able to spend as much time as possible on this stuff as we can. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. As always, you can hit up our website to find Collins's uh, coaching services if you're interested in that. Find his articles on StarCityGames.com. And other than that, uh, I don't have much else. Anything you got? Not for me. Until next time, let's keep it rolling. Yep. Have a great week. Peace. Peace.